0: Start your countdown to the most delicious Sunday of the year at Whole Foods Market. The Easter in Bloom event is on. Experience it in stores from March 29th through April 11th with irresistible deals and delights storewide. Save on feast-worthy animal welfare certified meats like spiral-cut ham and boneless ribeye. Then add a flash of green to the scene with savings on organic asparagus. Too busy to cook? Don't sleep on their crowd-favorite catering. Find all of that plus source for good floral bouquets and more at your local Whole Foods Market.
1: Scott Strode has been sober for almost a quarter century, but don't be fooled. He looks like a very young guy, and I think he still is reasonably young. He was one of the lucky folks that was able to, or I guess maybe got the gift of desperation uh, during the early part of his life. He has a TED Talk. I think this might be our first guest with a TED Talk. Uh, He is the executive director of the Phoenix, uh, which is an incredible community all over America. They're based in Boston and Denver. Those are their major hubs. They're getting a spot in L.A. It's an outlet where people can show up with 48 hours sober and you find your inspiration and your recovery in working out. Anybody can do it. You just got to be 48 hours sober. Uh, he speaks about you know experiencing childhood trauma early on, and, and that's one of the reasons why he was looking to check out uh, through Alcohol and Drugs. This is an amazing story. It's a, he's a really cool dude. What I like about this podcast, um, this particular one, is that we live in the solution a lot. I mean, this guy talks about being brought to his knees and losing his mind on his bathroom floor thinking he was going to die because of drugs. But, man, he's been living in the solution for a long time, and he's been helping other people with their solution. 65,000 people, uh, this group, the Phoenix, has affected and impacted. So he impacted me today. Hopefully he does for you. Somebody that is always... Impacting America and countries beyond. Kevin Souza. Hello, Scott.
2: Hi, how are you?
1: Hey, man, what's going on?
2: <laughs> Not too much. Thanks for reaching
1: out. Oh man, thank you for for coming uh, on board to. Chat with me for a little bit uh i can't i can't thank you enough and uh i I appreciate you fitting us in what are you traveling today
2: um i actually just got back to boston um and i'm here for for to meet with the phoenix leadership team we're doing our strategic planning and um so yeah i'm back back here i live in denver normally but i'm in boston for a period of time as we expand here we have sort of our east coast headquarters
1: here and you're from boston right
2: I got sober here. I'm actually from Pennsylvania, but I got sober here, uh, you know, just a little over
1: 24 years ago. What, what, uh, what part of Pennsylvania? Lancaster County. Okay. Sort of farmland. Oh, I know. know I'm from uh, outside of Philadelphia. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Bryn Mawr, Villanova, that area.
2: Oh, yeah. So we we probably misspent our youth in, the, in some of the same places.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So just to give you a quick background, I'm going to give an intro for you, so we don't need to do that right now. Um, and yeah. we can just get right into the conversation if you're okay with that.
2: Yeah, that's
1: great. Okay. Now, how do you say your last name, Strode? Strode, yeah. Strode, okay. Um, I want to ask you about, first of all, you've been sober for how long?
2: Uh, just over 24 years.
1: And you've been doing the Phoenix since 2006.
2: Correct.
1: So you're the executive director of the Phoenix. For people who don't know, what exactly is the Phoenix?
2: Uh, The Phoenix is a free, sober, active community that uses the inherent transformative power of activities, um, some athletic-based, some sort of social events, um but really those are just a place that you meet a new group of friends that that support you in your recovery journey so we use the inherent transformative power of sports and activities to bring people together in recovery uh, to find the physical and emotional strength they need to stay sober
1: and uh, the reason that's the first question i ask you is because i'm just doing a little bit of research you know you've and this is a, as of a couple years ago um, you're talking about tens of thousands of people that you have helped through this, um, you yeah,
2: know, over sixty
1: five thousand people over sixty five thousand people. and so this is this is something you started um in in recovery back in two thousand and six but but before that, take me through your last night drinking and using,
2: yeah, so i um should I give a little background, or just go right into? You
1: can the, give some background. The, yeah, give a little background. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So I started uh, drinking and using pretty young. I experienced some early childhood trauma, and that was really what I was trying to numb with the drugs and alcohol. Really, what I was trying to do with 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 them is sort of fill um, fill in some self self esteem wounds. What happened the first time? Carried- you,
1: what happened the first time you drank? Do you remember? Like, how did you feel?
2: Yeah, I I. I I do remember, I mean, for me, it wasn't so much the physical sensation of getting drunk the first time. It was really kind of the the status that came with it, right? Like being able to steal booze from the liquor cabinet or um, knowing where who could buy you beer. It just sort of like elevated my place in my peer group at the time. And I so much wanted to be accepted and, and part of that 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 really was the, the kick for me was being able to do that and then over time the physical addiction started to kind of take hold um, from the substances.
1: I can totally relate because it's uh, that early on would you quote unquote cool crowd or whatever the people that are the knuckleheads that are drinking like us uh, it's feeds your ego and then eventually it feeds your addiction so it's like the perfect package
2: yeah it really was and so for me having some having some of those self esteem wounds from early childhood stuff i it just it just fit right in, and I was off and running.
1: Do you talk about the childhood trauma exactly what it was
2: um i not specifically it was really just stuff that that kind of broke down my own self worth and uh and and for me I I was trying to find that on the outside, uh, through kind of where I fit in my peer group, like we were just talking about, or, or when I couldn't feel that sense of fitting in, I would just numb that pain with, with more booze or more drugs.
1: Do you have alcoholism in your family?
2: I do. I had alcohol, grew up around alcoholism and, um, also my father had untreated mental illness. So it was a pretty dynamic childhood.
1: Yeah. To say the least. Right. I mean, there's a lot of times I was predisposed. I think, you know, it, it was in my family. Um, you know, people used to say my dad was from Connecticut and people with his family, just, you know, alcoholism all throughout the side of his family. Somebody said it doesn't run it gallops, you know? And, uh, and man, so I had my father with the untreated alcoholism did the best he could without question, but untreated alcoholism, which created some, some trauma for, for myself, my brothers, I guess. And then, we had that Mm -hmm. physical dependency and addiction too. So it's, it is just quite the rocket ship.
2: It it really is. And, and when you grow up around it, it's sort of normalized. I kind of joke about this, but it really wasn't a family picnic till somebody went to the emergency room. (laughs) Um, And, you know, whether you fell off the side of the above ground pool and broke some ribs or some cousins got in a fight or whatever it was, it was like, it was just that was the chaos i was sort of used to so of course that was sort of the the life i started to build for myself
1: i heard a guy say it in a meeting just just a, uh a couple of days ago you know normal is what you get used to mm-hmm. and that's pretty much it i mean that's i I look back at my life and i look at it now in recovery too when i'm not doing you know when i'm not spiritually fit or you know i'm not like, like i can relate to you when i'm not working out or going to meetings um yeah i i get used to Stuff that should be abnormal, but it becomes normal. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, the beauty of kind of the path I've been on recently is like just making that normal something new and, and something different and something positive. Um, and that's what I found in my own journey getting into athletics.
1: Well, we're, we're jumping around a little bit here, but I, the reason I asked you, because we started off with how you've, you've begun this, this venture in 2006, it has touched the lives of you know we're we're moving towards 100,000 people. But your last night, uh, just you know checking up on you and reading stuff about you and watching some some videos about you, uh, your last night was as bad as it gets. Uh, yeah, you know, w- with alcohol and drugs, and and I think it's interesting for people to get a window into that because here we are talking to you now. Um, you're going yeah. back for a leadership. You got a leadership meeting. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah. you're leading people. And, yeah. and tell us about your last night. Sure, sure.
2: So, you know, towards the end of my drinking and drugging, it had kind of stripped away all those dreams I had of what I could possibly accomplish. You know, when I grew up, and and uh, and I was just kind of living living day to day in between drinking and drugging, and um, and. I I had been trying to quit for about a year and a half, but never got enough time to call it a a relapse, right? Like it was just, I was kept drinking and using and, and, um, I was on a, uh, cocaine bender and I had been out for, you know, essentially two days and, uh, and I was so paranoid. I was like locked up in my apartment, um, thought the cops were after me. You know, was had all the lights out. Was kind of hiding out in the bathroom, and you know, here I am on this bender, drinking and using. And, if you're at all like me, I'm and, guessing
1: I'm guessing you're the only person there, right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm the only
2: person there. Yeah, yeah. Years ago, it went from being something that was social to something yeah. that was just uh, a couple hardcore users and me, and then it was just me. And um, so, uh, anyway, I I just my heart was racing and I, you know, was so sort of strung out. I just thought, knew that that's how my life was going to end. And I couldn't imagine someone having to tell my mom that they found me dead on the bathroom floor somewhere. And, and I woke up that next day and uh, felt pretty beat up obviously, but uh, set to to changing the way I was living. And, And that was the last night I drank and used.
1: What was the next thing you did?
2: Um, for me, I had already been exposed to boxing. And so the boxing gym was kind of my safe place, believe it or not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I always say that I was scooped up with as much love as you can find in a boxing gym. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I went in there and there were a couple other sober guys and they were teaching me about the sport. But I just started going over there with my gym bag and waiting for the place to open and would go in and work out and help coach other folks. and. And when they close up, I'd go home and that's how I would spend my weekends.
1: And this is when you first stopped using or was this when you were using too?
2: This was when I was using too. I was trying to kind of like fill in all that time so I wouldn't be out at bars and boozing. Um, But when I got sober, I just doubled down on that tactic. I just started going all the time and I'd be there and I'd try to surround myself with people that were in recovery that were also in the gym. And that's how I started putting together, you know, a couple of days at the time. And that turned into a week. And that turned into abstinence based uh, recovery.
1: And so this is, what, 1995, I guess?
2: Uh, what would it, If I was good at math, I could tell you. It would be, what is, uh, 24 years. So, it, yeah, it would be coming up on... Um,
1: I guess 1997.
2: 90, yeah, yeah, 97.
1: And so you're going in there and you're finding that release, are you, are you finding what you kind of got from alcohol and drugs in that gym with, with the camaraderie with the endorphins and the dopamine hits you get from natural, you know, combat?
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. I was actually finding the stuff I was trying to find in booze in the gym, which was more genuine connections because these guys were really, I was invested in helping them be better athletes and they were invested in helping me and we'd help each other train and, get ready for fights or whatever it was. And and um, and it was a more genuine and real thing than just being impaired, you know, out with a bunch of other people getting high and drinking. And, um, and uh, what really made the difference was it actually began to heal some of those self-esteem wounds because I could sit a little prouder when I was starting to help coach other people. And all of a sudden I was a mentor for the first time in something. I never really felt like... I had anything to mentor somebody in previously and I started to have my own accomplishments, like getting in the ring for the first time. is pretty intimidating. And when you do it, you, you feel lifted because you, you took on something that was scary.
1: Win, lose or draw
2: ac- accomplished. A, yeah. You accomplished a goal.
1: And so were you, had you not gotten in the ring to actually fight before you were sober?
2: Um, I hadn't really gotten in before. I was in there training and uh-huh. so we'd kinda of go up and spar against other gyms and um actually the guy I first got in the ring with was also a guy in recovery and um you know those guys became my friends early on and kept me on the path.
1: What starts to happen for you uh as this fog, tension, shame, right, starts to lift.
2: Yeah, for me it just started to like I started to begin to dream of what was possible in my recovery like uh, of who I could actually be not uh not impaired or or hindered by my addiction and and I started you know I started getting into climbing I started um you know for, through I remember my boxing coach told me to start road work going out and jogging a couple miles a week and I could barely run like 500 yards and I had to stop and walk home because I was like you know smoking cigarettes and boozing and all that before um so i i finally started running i could run three miles you know all that goal setting started to kind of show up and in in this sort of belief in myself that also reflected it in 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 my belief that i could stay sober and uh and then you know as i got more into that sport going doing triathlon i started just uh Becoming a different person, I, I had a positive identity for the first time instead of this negative kind of shame that I'd carry around with me and how I saw myself. Well, clearly, it started to be a more positive self-view.
1: Clearly, not only, not only you're positive, but you're humble because you tried to skip over uh, triathlon. How, how does that, <laughs> so what the hell? What the hell happens? You're 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 boxing and you're getting in shape and you're getting that that fix from boxing and you and you say, hey, let's take this in another direction while I box and, and you start to work towards a, tri- a triathlon.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I found out pretty quickly that boxing's not great for your head, you know? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and I was a heavyweight, so that was an issue. You know, Those guys pretty, pretty hard. So I was, um, I wanted to find something else and I found triathlon. I was just kind of on a whim uh, found a, a personal trainer who was a coach. And she said she coached me for my first race. One of the friends from the boxing gym trained with me. And um, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even know how to swim, but, but I had begun to do this thing every year on my recovery anniversary, I would try to do something different or, or new or something that I wouldn't have been able to do in my addiction. And, um, and and this was one of those things it was around my recovery anniversary and decided to do my first triathlon and uh it was a short triathlon but i finished it and um you know i have this joke that you know my friend came up she's like are you a little nervous and i said yeah how can you tell and she's like you're putting on your wetsuit backwards (laughs) you know (laughs) like so so i didn't have any clue about what i was doing but i survived the swim barely and uh and the, and the bike and the run and um, but I was just hooked you know I just started to find these things that um, helped me start to dream again about how big life could be and I would jump in with both feet and that ultimately led me into long distance triathlon started racing the Ironman and uh, and ultimately competed in the world championship at half Ironman distance.
1: How'd you do uh, with that?
2: Um, I did okay i'm I'm a big guy, so I was never I would pass a lot of people on the swim and the bike, and then the run was just people gone by me the whole way
1: okay so yeah. they, i was i was uh i was
2: uh, it was a lot to move down the road on on my feet, <laughs> but on a bike or swimming I could do pretty well
1: so you you know you you mentioned something uh just ab- about the fact that you got nervous, you put your wetsuit on backwards, and <laughs> it's nuts because i in sobriety there's like firsts and then there's just overall big moments, no matter how many times you've done certain things. And uh, there's almost like a sober blackout in a way where you're just kind of, for me, you're just going through it. But the most important part is you're going through it and you're not getting drunk and you're not getting high and everything gets easier. And, and you know, like you said, you, you develop skills where you could actually mentor people because you knew the way. Um, And, and, You know, in this, we're talking about boxing right now, but like, you know, now we're talking about the triathlon. You go from not knowing how to do it, totally sober, you know, like putting on your wetsuit backwards to running Ironmans.
2: Yeah. 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 It's incredible. And what I started to realize is like in those activities is also the same hook that you can find in drinking and using. So you do have to be careful, like, I started realizing, like I, I, could punish myself with those sports too. Like I could, I would finish an Ironman and then I had to do Ironman faster. Then I'd do a mountain bike race. Then I had to do a 24-hour mountain bike race. Like it always had to be harder and longer. Um, and and I started to realize, like this, there's a pitfall here as well. It was very similar to my drinking and using. And and what I what I realized, what really filled my heart with these activities was the training and sharing the path with the other people who were, you know, like I, I like to say that would rather get up at five in the morning to go train as opposed to stay up till five in the morning drinking and drink it and use it. And I started surrounding myself with more and more folks that thought that way. And, and that was the real magic. So I started focusing in more on, on the path as the goal as, as opposed to the finish line of the race.
1: Okay. So this is such an interesting topic because I think a lot of people get sober and they find other addictions, whether they're healthy, quote unquote, like I said before, or not. And I talked to my friend, buddy of mine about this, you know, I, okay, now I, I run nine miles and I eat like 50,000 calories. And then I get up and I have to run nine miles again. And it's just like, okay, let's, let's, let's take it easy and find some balance here. And because that's, that's just another obsession. I mean, now, I'll always say it's not doing anywhere near the damage that alcohol and drugs were doing to me, but it's still another, another deal where you just you become wrapped up in it and you become obsessed. So you're saying that the tribal community, that, that bond you dealt with the people training, is what you, you got lost in and not so much attaching yourself to the end result.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say I went for the end result first. Like there was something about boxing, like smashing the heavy bag as hard as I could was something I needed at, at that time. But then you start to realize like your hands are all busted up and getting, you're getting arthritis and you're super young and you're like, you know, you can't do that for the rest of your life. And you just start to realize that like I'm still seeking my emotional well-being outside of me because I, something is getting in the way of me finding it on the inside. Um, so, so you know that extreme. I always think if it's if it's destructive to you or people around you, you got to look at your relationship with it, and and that means that you know I know triathlete friends that don't see their kids on the weekends because they're getting their miles and training. That's that's not that different than not being with your family because you're out boozing and doing other stuff. Like, it's you can find this this unhealthy relationship with that those things. But to your point, it's way better. You know, way better to be riding a mountain bike than smoking meth. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but but somewhere in there, too, you can also find this healthy balance, right, where you find that fulfillment and joy and goal-setting and accomplishment, but you also have to do it in a balanced way where there's room for the people in your life and to kind of take good, good, good care of yourself also.
1: What was the conduit to that balance for you? I know you touched on it a little bit. If you could elaborate.
2: You know I think it was it was the the sort of the joy side of sharing that stuff with peop- other people like it was just the fun you know it was like it was like you go out you go out climbing and you come back and you had some sort of like you know, sort of sketchy day where the weather was bad and you got stormed off a climb you're on. But at the end of the day, you're fist bumping with your friends and you're like, well, man, that was incredible. And man, you really showed up for me in that one part and we wouldn't have made it through if you didn't bring extra water or whatever. Like you just have these adventures and it's in those where you start to like, you realize you're just living and, and actually reaching some of your full potential. Uh, whereas, Boozing, you know, I started it because it was a coping mechanism, but it stopped working for me almost as quickly as it, as it started. Um, these things were ways to cope that that had a, a longer fuse, right? It burned longer and stayed with you because it actually created uh, positive sort of self-esteem and, and positive connections with others.
1: I love that. It burned longer and stayed with you longer. That's I've never really been able to package it and describe it to people, but that is what working out, connecting with other people, whether it's when you're not working out or when you're working out. And and what you're talking about too, and again, you're a humble dude, you, you're helping people. I mean, you are on the one end, right, finding a way to cope, but you're sharing time with other people, bringing things to the table.
2: Yeah, and that was where the shift happened for me where i started I started – realizing my life had gotten really big and full of like opportunity. And I saw a lot of my friends, even in, even in long-term recovery, still white knuckling, like, you know, trying to hold on each day. And I was like, dude, you need to get, go up a mountain with me or something. Like, let's get out and do something. And, and we started doing that. And, and my climbing partner at the time was in recovery. My other climbing partner was a clinical social worker and so it was like this perfect combo. I was like, why don't we just start taking more people with us? And that was the beginning of what later would become the Phoenix.
1: So now we're in the Phoenix. I mean, we, we've reached a point um, in the conversation where this starts up. How do you get something like this off the ground?
2: Yeah, well, I didn't know anything about start, starting a nonprofit. You know, Fortunately, I knew a lawyer who helped me through the paperwork. But um, but we knew we wanted to make it a nonprofit because we wanted it to be free to to anybody who was 48 hours clean and sober, and we picked that low low bar to entry because we we wanted as many people to be able to access it as they could. And for it's hard to get 48 hours if you're in yeah, recovery. it's hard to
1: get 10 minutes.
2: Yeah, but if you if you could do that, you could dip your toe in. You could try rock climbing or hiking or whatever and you do it with other people in recovery and and reflection like maybe that maybe friday night you'd come to a phoenix event and, what's and, a phoenix
1: event like an ex- yeah, for instance and,
2: yeah any activity where you're where you're 48 hours clean and sober it's led by a phoenix volunteer or staff member and um you adhere to our code of conduct which basically says uh, if it's not supportive, um, then it's not welcome. And it's yeah. not like you get kicked out for that. It's just a handrail to help help folks figure out how to build sort of nurturing community together. But you show up, and it could be yoga or climbing or a hike or a bike ride or a social event or art night. Um, like, you know, it, it can be anything that just is a meaningful activity that brings people together in recovery. Um so, you know, if you can show up at one and you don't need any equipment, you don't need any know-how, we'll just we'll show you how to do it. And oftentimes the instructor is another person in recovery or an ally, somebody who's been impacted by a uh, substance use disorder through a loved one or something like that.
1: I, I love how you, you bring those people in under the tent because that's kind of what this podcast is about. Honestly, sometimes I forget that, but this is for people who are – Dealing with 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 folks that are struggling or, or or getting clean or in and out because it's so hard. I mean, they're uh, going through it just as much as the addict is because it is such a freaking roller coaster ride, and they they can't even in most times put their finger on it. So to have an outlet like this, where you know, it's like we we could, there's Al-Anon, right, um, and there's there's uh, other places where people who have loved ones that are in recovery or that are still getting messed up, can go. And then there's a place like this, dude, where, I mean, that's incredible that you have put your arms around that group of folks as well.
2: Well, you, as you know, right? Like the family goes through the addiction for sure with the person. So why not let the family go through the recovery together too? And, and one thing that I think is, is not talked about enough is I kind of think of the family dynamic a lot of times, as like a as like a, a pl- a theatrical play, right? Like, you get typecast as the addict and alcoholic, and then all of a sudden you're trying to change your role in the play, and everyone's like, whoa, 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 like, you know, we don't want you to drink and use, but you're the guy who, like, messes up the family, you know, Christmas party or whatever. Like, yeah. if, if you're not doing it, then, then we actually realize that Uncle So-and-So might be the one that's also doing it, you know? <laughs> so it's yeah. like you're trying to get out of this, role, everybody almost has to get to know each other again as as this family now with someone in recovery and sometimes it makes people look at their part in the dynamic as well. So I think like if we can create a place where the family went through the addiction together, let's create a place where the family can also go through recovery together. And same thing, they have to be 48 hours clean and sober, they have to adhere to that same code of conduct, but if they do, they can come too.
1: And where are you guys located? Like, give me a rundown of that so people listening, sure, yeah, can know.
2: Yeah, so we're 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 sort of we have sort of a East Coast, uh, West Coast, and Central headquarters. We're we have a building in Denver, a building in Boston, and we're looking to hopefully find some donors to get it, help us get a building in LA. Um, but other than that, we, we have volunteers that lead Phoenix and communities across the country. So we're essentially in 40-plus states and 60-something communities. Um, and we just launched our Phoenix app, so anybody can pull it down from the app store. It's just the Phoenix, and it has a big red bird. And uh, you can find a Phoenix event near you. We're, we're in most places, and if we're not in your community, you could raise a hand as a volunteer and start it.
1: Yeah. And that's, I think a lot of people, you know, I'm, I, I, I go to meetings, right? I'm a 12 step AA guy. Do you, are you involved in any kind of 12 step stuff or do you, is that a part of your I, recovery? I,
2: I have been over the years when I first got sober, I was really just in the boxing gym and out climbing and doing triathlon. But six years into my recovery, I realized like most of my friends go to this young people's meeting, why don't I go with them? So I went and. <laughs> I found a sponsor there and started working the steps and so it's, it's uh, been part of my story, but not as much in the early side.
1: Yeah. I mean, and that's whatever, whatever. And that's another part of this, this vehicle I'm trying to move forward or drive here. It's like, Hey, whatever works for you, if you got something that makes you fulfilled and you're off drugs uh, and you're off drinking, uh, and your life—if you're all like me—was a disaster before you got sober. Like I want to hear about it. I, I think, yeah. and, and, and I have buddies who are in the AA community all around the country who hopefully will hear this and and, and maybe want to get involved, or, or people that I don't even know because there's there's people out out there that are involved, whether it's you know I said twelve steps or a different kind of recovery that just want to help and be a part and, and pass along what they have for somebody else. And, and a lot of these people love working out um, and just connecting like, like we've talked about. So that's a real opportunity for folks. This is the, you know, the Phoenix is a real opportunity for folks. I love the idea.
0: The world looks different behind the handlebars of a rad electric bike. Grabbing
1: takeout looks less like greasy styrofoam boxes and more like a cross town adventure. Ride shares look less like piling into the back of a car and more like grabbing fresh air with your friends and commuting can even start to look like the best part of your day. That's because with Rad, the world is what you make of it, not what it makes of you. See for yourself with a 14-day free trial. Find your fun at RadPowerBikes.com.
0: Start your countdown to the most delicious Sunday of the year at Whole Foods Market. The Easter in Bloom event is on. Experience it in stores from March 29th through April 11th with irresistible deals and delights wide. Save on feast-worthy animal welfare certified meats like spiral cut ham and boneless ribeye. Then add a flash of green to the scene with savings on organic asparagus. Too busy to cook? Don't sleep on their crowd favorite catering. Find all of that plus source for good floral bouquets and more at your local Whole Foods Market.
2: I, I love that you mentioned that because it, it bridges naturally both ways too. Like you may show up and never been in the rooms of, of the 12 step community and you meet somebody and you're inspired by their recovery and they're going to their meeting, their eye openers meeting in the morning before the workout. And all of a sudden you join them, you know, and the other happens like we have folks, you know, that have had 10 years in recovery and their life is still pretty small and, and in sort of like where they think they can go with it, what they dream is possible. And they come in and go up a climbing wall and their mind's blown. And a year later, they're gone out to Yosemite with some friends to go climb in, and their life gets really big, you know. So we have both, both things happen.
1: Why, why do you think, you know, sometimes it's difficult for people even to get in the positions that you just mentioned that we're talking about because of the stigma. Why, why do you think that's such a problem still in society? In 2021, it is still, um, we, we like to think it's not, but it is. Why is it still such a problem, Scott?
2: Yeah, I think I think it's, um, it's going to take a couple things. It's going to take sort of pioneers, right, I think in the recovery community that are willing to, to be open about their own recovery. That's why I appreciate what you're doing so much. Um, you know, it's like you have a voice and you're using it to bring this into the light. And I think that's that's awesome. We can still respect, you know, kind of traditions of 12 of step communities and keep that stuff, you know, as a place of anonymity for people who need that safe space to step into. But like I wear a t-shirt that says sober across the chest.
1: I've seen it, it's cool. And, uh,
2: yeah. And I'm proud of it. Like I'm not, I'm not that. I just wear with pride and it's amazing how many people say, Hey man, me too. I got six years or whatever. Or somebody comes up to me. And it's like, oh, I wish my cousin would wear that shirt. Yeah. I'm like hey, Here's my, here's my card. If I can help him, give them my number, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. And, and we just, those of us that are willing, you know, to really kind of wear that sober shirt, we can make space for other people to choose, you know, and, and bring it into the light enough that we start to chip away at that stigma.
1: I, I, one of the things you talk about, I saw in an interview, uh, was almost like the domino effect that, that shame can have. You know, a family in in your neighborhood will have a child, brother, sister, whoever, that overdoses on drugs, and it they won't tell anybody. It's so much shame. Yeah. And then the family down the block who doesn't, you know it hasn't had an impact that a story like that could deliver they have a son who overdoses or they the the person we're talking about generally overdoses and it's yeah. this this tight lid we keep on on you know addiction because of the shame attached to it that, that that keeps people dying yeah
2: yeah exactly i mean imagine if if people actually turned out you know in a way to help in a non-judgmental way to like really be there for each other in these tough times, you know, around substance use disorder or mental health struggles or whatever it is, then we'd be more prepared if, if that came up in our own life. Right. Cause we, we sort of take the shame out of it. We, we start to realize like maybe there's some resources out there and here's how we got plugged in in our community and now we can help somebody else with that. And it's um, it's just something we need to just, just move past, honestly. And and I think if we can be a voice that, that helps people realize, yeah. I, I think of it this way, like most of us in society are seeking our emotional well-being externally with something, by what we look like, how much money we make, where we live, what our job is. Um, we just chose a drink and a drug, right? Like our thing, that was our thing. and uh, And ours got loud enough that we had to listen to it. But other people have other things they're using. It's it's just they're using it. They're using something different. Yeah. And so if we just realize it's a human experience, right, and that we all can heal and we can all have we all have this intrinsic strength, we just have, need to find a place to let it out. Then then I think we'd be way better off.
1: I like how you say we're all recovering from the human experience. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we 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 really are. I wanted to ask you too about, you know, you're you're a face and you're out there. Uh, do you ever feel this? Is, I'm just curious about this. Do you ever feel any pressure, uh, to, you know, to to live a certain way, to act a certain way? Does it does it almost help keep you on the path, or is it like, uh, is it sometimes exhausting?
2: <laughs> it is. It's both. I'd say. You know, like it definitely. You know, I was like, I can't go pick up a beer. I'd blow up this whole thing we built. Right? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Um, but but you know, it's also one of those things that, like, I think that um, I would like to just be one of many because, like, the more of us that put our shoulder into this issue and start leaning into it and trying to trying to come up with change, you know, like what, what hurts my heart a little bit is like. The, the lack of sort of entrepreneurship in how our country's approaching this. Like we kind of wait for sort of DC to release whatever funding they're gone to in the space. Then the people that get that funding go get that funding and they do that thing. Which is what if we said, how do we how do we create something so much better tomorrow that the way we're approaching it today becomes obsolete because we're actually making a difference. Like that's the kind of conversation I'd like to see start happening where thought leaders are coming together and like, let's, let's sort of blow this whole thing up, how we're approaching this. And instead of just a, a, a drug to get you off drugs, like let's figure out how to tap into the intrinsic strength we all have because everybody who's struggling with substance use disorder also has the same, the intrinsic strength inside them to be the solution to their own problem. If, folks like yourself and other people that have gone before can scoop them up with that love and help them get them on the path, then recovery is possible for them too.
1: And look, I I don't think, hey man, somebody wants to be sober and they want to keep it anonymous like 150%. But I also do think it's a kind of a bummer that, you know, some of the coolest people I know are sober, whatever your definition of cool is. Some of the people I like the most that wear life like a loose shirt, you know, And nobody knows it. And I'm I'm like, God damn, you know? Um, Because people get the idea that we're all hanging out in church basements, you know, singing Kumbaya or judging other people, and that couldn't be further from the truth. And I I, I love people like you getting out there. And, you know, basically you're holding gatherings all over the country where people can go and get well.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I I, What I love about it too is, like, it becomes – Like, so for example, we, we have CrossFit, a big part of our programming. We have kind of a collaboration with CrossFit corporately. And um, we had a bunch of our guys go to a CrossFit competition and they crushed it. Like they did great. Like they're like super athletes, right? They, they're in some ways more disciplined than other athletes because they, they're not going out drinking, they're training, they're eating well, they're now on this path and, and their performance sort of reflects that, but there's this great part where somebody came over and they're like, Hey, why don't, what's that thing all the guys have on their ankles? <laughs> and I was like, Oh, they're ankle monitors, right? Like they're, 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 they're all, most of them are on probation, you know? Yeah. But here they are at the end of this thing on the podium, you know, standing up there with first and second place and they're wearing silver shirts and they're, for lack of a better term, starting to paint this picture that recovery can be badass yes. and awesome.
1: Yes. And
2: and it's something to be excited about. It's not like I, when I got sober, and maybe you felt this way too, but you kind of felt like your life was ending. For sure. And what if we paint the picture that life actually begins when you make that decision, and that it's, it's something that you should just jump into sooner because
1: there's so much out there for you. I mean, dude, I, it, that is absolutely the truth. I, for, and especially for me being, you know, an addict, uh, I used to sit on a bar stool, high on drugs, lying to people about doing stuff that I do now sober that I'm actually doing. Yeah. Uh, and that, yeah. That, that I had no, <laughs> that I had no shot of doing if I stayed, you know, stayed high or drunk. And that, that is something that I, I think for people to see, uh, physically, right? Like the guys out winning winning the CrossFit competitions with that with the ankle monitors on. Like those aren't leg weights, right? Like this, this yeah. is, these are yeah. guys who are starting to walk the path and have been given the opportunity to do that. What what have been? What's it been like for you to see some of those? I mean, if you have one or two that jumps out uh, that you want to share, but like the, the success stories, I'm sure you've had people come up under you that have really uh, just blown the doors off it.
2: Yeah, yeah, that that's that's amazing to see. Like, you know, at the Phoenix, I kind of think of it as a movement, not a nonprofit. You know, like it's it's anybody who is passionate about something and cares about this issue can raise their hand to be a volunteer to start Phoenix in their community, and um, and I just was, and moved by, all of those volunteers, how many lives they change, and. In places where I've never been, I've never met them, never been to any of their Phoenix events, but the people coming out of their events are having that same Phoenix moment that I did when I got in the ring for the first time, or somebody else did when they tied into the climbing rope for the first time. Like They truly are paying it forward, and and it just continues to remind me about the intrinsic strength and the resiliency in people. And, um, you know, I don't know, I think the, 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 moment that stands out for me is, so I raced all these Ironman, all this stuff, and then started a nonprofit. It grew to be a national nonprofit. So I pretty much just work now and try to stay fit <laughs> on the side. Okay. But, um, but I went to a Phoenix ride and I like bonked, right? Like I hit the wall, we're riding up this hill. My legs were shot. I'm like trying to get to this top of the hill. And there's this volunteer at the top, pulled over on the side of the road, a Phoenix volunteer, and he reaches into his pocket on his cycling jersey and he gives me a a gel, you know, and I like eat this thing because I'm like hitting the wall, I need some sugar. So I was like, eat this gel. And he's like, yeah, man, in my volunteer training, they told me i got to carry some extra snacks in case people... (laughs) He has no idea who you are, right? Yeah, yeah, and so I'm like, in some ways, years later, I saved my own life. By this <laughs> volunteer guy giving me this gel. Um, but uh, anyway, it was just so cool to see how he he had no judgment about me. He just was there for me. He waited for me at the top of that hill. And and I continued, I get to have my own Phoenix moments even with in, inside of this bigger thing. And, and imagine if we did that for each other in society more broadly. Imagine if we just waited at the top of the hill to help somebody who's having a hard time getting up it, whatever that hill is for them. Like we could, we could do this for more than just the recovery community.
1: Well, and if we applied that rule, you guys have right. That, that, that guide rail um, just be supportive or we don't, you know, we'd rather not have it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's simple.
1: You, you have a a Ted talk, which, uh, you know, I don't, I don't talk to too many people who have Ted talks. So um, that's a pretty, that's, that's, a, I don't know if that's, you know, a shot at me or, or, you know, I think it probably says a lot more about you and your success and your ability to convey your recovery and inspiration to folks, but without giving it all the way people can find it online, you know, just Scott Strode S T R O D E it'll, it'll be on this podcast, but you know, Ted talk, what are some of the key points you hit on in that talk?
2: yeah I think um, I think the the thing that really stood out for me on that is that 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 moment where we need moments of perspective on our life, where we can see the potential that's within us. And I think for folks struggling with addiction, we need enough of a clear head. <laughs> And that often gives us that moment of perspective on our life. That's why, you know, if you've, if you've been to treatment three times and you go a fourth, don't, don't feel defeated, right? Like maybe you needed that fourth time to get that moment of perspective. You know, I was on the bathroom floor paranoid enough times using and drinking, it and, it, and it took number 27 or whatever time it yeah. was for me doing that for it to stick. But, like, it, you need moment of perspective on your life. And you need this belief that you can, you can change your fate, right? That you can change your life and the way you're living it. And there's something about the, the strength you find in sort of moving your body. Um, like, you know, if you're, if you're new to recovery, like, and you're trying to get sober, like, try to get one day clean and go out for a walk. If you've, you know, if you got one day, try to get two and go out for a run if you get that try to get three and do it with somebody else you know like just start building on it slowly and 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 it's amazing how it starts to take shape it's recovery is possible for all of us it's just sometimes we gotta sort of stand on the top of the mountain to to be able to see that within us
1: were you surprised at yourself when you're giving that ted talk you're like man this is uh i've come a long way
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. I, I, I am often, you know, like, I kind of joke, but it's, it's. I never thought that, you know, like there was a time in my life I didn't know you put the lid back on a bottle of booze. Like, yeah. I thought it was just like you pop the top and then it's good to go. Yeah. Um, and then and then you know I was I'm living in the city now in Boston where I used to smoke crack in alleyways here. Yeah. And to go from that to being able to use that that experience and my experience of you know climbing and triathlon and all this other stuff to help others think about all that potential that isn't realized in the people that are out there now like if we could get them on the path with us you know we this this like country would be unstoppable
1: was it hard to start this nonprofit I mean walk me through what that was like again without give an exhausting detail and and you don't have all day yeah what was that like
2: yeah yeah i mean i think the hard part is like is um you know i i didn't have a i didn't sort of have a business background right like i i i had this hard drive to start a nonprofit. i would say to myself, if I could speak to myself back then, I would say try to partner with somebody who's already doing something uh-huh. <laughs> because a lot of people are like, Oh no, my nonprofit's a little different. I'm like, I'm sure there's something out there. Excuse me, but if you wanna help if you want to help veterans, there's probably a great veterans nonprofit you could go partner up with. Gotcha. If you want to help do something like Phoenix, why don't you just help start Phoenix? You know, like we're, we're already rolling and we've already kind of done the hard work of clearing the road. Um, So I'd say collaborate and partner up with people, but I didn't know that wisdom then. And so we just kind of charged off doing our own thing. And um, I'd say the hardest part was, um, was getting folks to care about the people we serve in the way that we wanted to, wanted them to. Um, so to break that down a little bit more, like there's some perception, I think that people have sometimes that it's the addict's fault and that it's a moral failing. And I think we need to let that go because the more I've learned about, you know, adverse childhood experience and some of the traumas that, that, that members who come to our program have been through, no surprise there drinking and using to numb that, right? Like, like let all that go and just realize that they don't want to be in that life either and do what you can to help them, you know, like to get the, get sort of funders to start to think differently about this. um, You know, there's a, there's a term you'll hear in, in sort of philanthropy around evidence based practices if we only bet on evidence-based practices, what about the innovations that actually could maybe even be better than them? Yeah. And Phoenix was one of those things where in the early days, they're like, wait, so you're just going to take people out in recovery and ride bikes with them and it's going to keep them sober. And I was like, yep, pretty much.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's never been done before. So we don't know if we can let you do it.
2: Yeah. But um, over time we started to have thought leaders leaders, that are philanthropists also come alongside us and say, we believe there can be a better way that maybe it's not just a funding issue. It's actually an innovation issue in, in this space and started betting on Phoenix in a big way. And that's what helped get us to as many places as we are today.
1: How have you seen the recovery community I mean, we talked about sort of the underbelly of it with the shame and the stigma, but how have you seen it evolve over the course of, you know, for you the last quarter century?
2: You know, what's really cool about that is, is I, I do think, um, not as quickly as we want it to, I do think the stigma and the shame is starting to melt and starting to go away to some degree. Um, because you know, in the, in the early days, like I'd wear my sober shirt around some of my recovery friends and they would feel uncomfortable. They're like, I don't know, man, that's kind of bold. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> and I was like, I don't think it is and now now there's people in in phoenix that are posting on their social media about them ha- them being in recovery and having a tough day and other phoenix people in their social media feed are hitting them up and saying all right where are you today i'm going to get some women together we're going to come over there and and get you and get you to a meeting and the woman who posted it is you know within you know six or seven responses on our social feed there's there's women showing up at her house to to get her connected yeah you know and it's like if people are already being open about it like we need to lean into that not let sort of our older mental models like hold us up from the innovation that could come because you know sobriety is on tiktok already you know like i barely know how to open the app yeah. But um, like, like it's going to innovate and it's going to do it because the the need is there and people um, want to find a better way. Let's just lean into that and and let what we build tomorrow be so much better than what we have today that maybe there's less people that have to go down the path that you and I did.
1: How how, how much speaking are you doing? What? Um,
2: uh, as as much as I can. Like, I really want to get out there and just share the story of the Phoenix and continue to kind of inspire people alongside what we're doing, but also innovating in the space. Because I don't think, I don't think that, you know, a pharma solution to a pharma problem is the answer. No, I don't think so. Like, and I think that we keep adding treatment beds, but the problem's bigger than it's ever been. Like, I think that we need to go back to this, this, more primal place of of taking care of our community and our tribe, and 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 scooping up the people that are around you and supporting them however you can, and and um, I think we need to let go of all the all the mental models that that the person with a substance use disorder is is the is the problem, right? Like that's just a symptom in my mind, of their drinking and using is just a symptom of something deeper. Let's go after what's deeper.
1: Speaking of, of going deep, I'll, I got about three more minutes with you and I'll let you get, get on to your life. Um, what, have you, what have you seen with the opioid crisis and and, and addiction with that and, and heroin use? Because I, when I was using, if I was around, I, I believe I would be dead. Uh, and it doesn't sound like it was a huge part of your story. We were kind of ahead of that uh, in, in a way, but now, I mean, it's ripping society apart and, you know, how, how have you seen it where, you know, I guess from, from the recovery perspective, I mean, people have to come to you as hopeless as hopeless can be.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, I'm in the same boat as you, like, you know, really wasn't as present when I was at the peak of my addiction. And uh, I certainly wasn't but, saying no, <laughs> it just didn't, yeah, nobody yeah. was off yeah, yeah, for sure. But I think like the difference is as you know, it's like the lethality of it. Like the I feel I feel like if, if somebody raises a hand for help and we can't get them in, on the path within a couple of years, we have a pretty good chance of losing them because that it's such a lethal yeah drug. And and uh I think that I believe you know, if you read about adverse childhood experiences, the ACEs, um, there's a pretty strong evidence about how early childhood stuff impacts our substance use. And um, if, if the loss of our parents and the incarceration and overdoses and all of these things impact the kids, um, imagine the kids coming up under this addiction crisis. So I think the next wave is bigger so we need to move now. Like as a country, we need to mobilize in a major way to, to bring some hope to our communities and, and get on top of this thing or the next wave is going to be bigger.
1: Well, and that is a realistic way to look at it, right? Like the, the more we don't, we don't run to give these people help, the ones who want it, the, the more likely it is they're going to die. That's just, uh, that sucks, yeah. but it's the reality. I mean, you get guys, people dying from fentanyl, all, all, all the time. And it sucks to say it, but it's all the time. You know, I got a buddy who just got sober off of that stuff. And he's he knows he'll, if he goes back out, he knows it's likely that he dies. I mean, this yeah. is back, you know, I'm a tenant um, of, of of the rooms, right? And, uh, you know, the, yeah. the big book said, go out and try more drinking. That's it. We're not living in that world anymore in certain aspects of this fight. And uh, we've got yeah. to just give people all the hope and support we can.
2: Yeah, I agree. I agree. And um yeah, so I I think I think we got to we got to mobilize and we got to do it now. I mean, I think the pandemic that just happened told us um you know how how much people are in pain. When you look at suicide rates going up and overdoses and alcohol consumption, I was just reading an article about um, even people for getting on the list for liver transplants are like higher now because of the way that drinking was during the pandemic like it it is we are we are sort of at the peak of this and we need to move quickly or it will cycle up again yeah um and that's why phoenix is you know we grew at an exponential rate like most people would say don't grow your nonprofit you know from 7 communities to 60 communities in like two years but we had to try right like we have to try because we need to throw everything at this that we can and if phoenix can help anybody let's get it to more cities
1: yeah i mean i'm not that this is a fair comparison but you've never told like ems to not set up in certain corners of america um you know like let's get let's get out there let's 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 see how we can have the impact? All right, Scott, I'm gonna let you go. But any anything else before anything any any other gems you want to drop on us? Because this has been, this has been I, I, inspiring for me, and it's I, I feel very good right now. So hopefully, like you said, it'll be a slow burn. Um, and I'll yeah, no, yeah, I'll be able to share uh, this.
2: I, I appreciate it. Thanks for 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 sharing about the Phoenix. And if people want to learn more, then you just go to the Phoenix.org. Um, and if there's somebody who wants to support it coming to the town, they can make a donation there too. All
1: right. The Phoenix dot org. It is a free sober active community that helps people rise, recover, and live through the power of fitness. It's the real deal. It's at a, it's what, forty, fifty fifty cities all over the country. It's locations where people can get involved, man. So
2: yeah. Yeah. Just show up and forty eight hours sober is the only place of the mission.
1: All right, man, Scott, I cannot thank you enough. This will be up tomorrow, so I'll just I'll shoot you a link via text. Um, and, uh, dude, thanks for sharing the message.
2: Yeah, thank you, and thanks for what you do. I, I really appreciate that you're out there.
1: Yeah, thank you, man. I'll, I'll, I'll hopefully see you down the road, man. Talk to you soon. Take care. All right, see you, Scott.